I'm very well, Salvatore, and thanks for having me. I used to be an adjunct fellow at CIS, so I'm always happy to be back. Well, there was a fear that it would be Obama 2.0, and the fear was because, as you mentioned, that Biden would invite back a lot of Obama people. I don't think it's a redux for mainly two reasons. One, I think the Trump administration has had a far more enduring uh, impact on American foreign policy than even the Democrats themselves would admit. But it won't go back to the way it was with Obama. And then secondly, particularly on China, um, it's said that the COVID pandemic has accelerated every trend there is out there. And that's that's certainly true with China. There were uh, sort of, uh, there were little pockets in America who were very concerned about the sorts of things that uh, Chinese Communist Party were doing. I think now that spreads through the whole DC system, to some extent it's through the whole countries. So America has changed on China, and therefore Biden has changed on China. uh it's 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 a good it's a good question i i would say it's both i mean china has in my view china has always wanted to achieve the sorts of things that xi jinping is now talking about taiwan south china sea infiltration into institutions of democratic countries that all preceded xi jinping but xi jinping has in my mind foolishly been very upfront about what he's trying to achieve and he's tried to do it in a very rapid uh, overt ham-fisted way so that has caused a fundamental change in the perception of the desirability if you like of china's rise Well, even if you look at, uh, if you go back 10 years ago, just, just prior to Xi Jinping, if you look at, uh, everyone was talking about the peaceful rise rhetoric or peaceful development that Xi Jinping and, and, and his predecessors advocated. Even if you go before that and you talk about Deng Xiaoping, the whole hide, uh, hide your capabilities, bide your time. Uh, and then if you look at the documents of the Chinese Communist Party, which have slowly trickled out, the objectives that I mentioned, that is, number one, obviously uh, reaffirming the rule of the CCP in maturity. Uh, secondly, Taiwan, South China Sea, uh, expanding into the South Pacific, expanding to the Indian Ocean, uh, infiltrating into democratic institutions around the region and the world to, to create a far more pro-CCP uh, environment, all of those objectives um, were around before Xi Jinping, but they were always not spoken about publicly. Xi Jinping has made it almost part of his domestic standing to, to talk loudly and proudly about these objectives. Uh, it may be great for his short-term domestic standing, but it's certainly not good for any kind of uh, 
surreptitious Chinese approach we took the day before. It's, it's early days, but I, I suppose I'm comparing Biden to Obama and comparing Biden to Trump in terms of where, where the various um, two presidents stood. So you take Obama, and one reason why it's so critical of Obama, he had a habit of drawing red lines. It was in Syria, uh, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, but even more locally, it was about the militarization of islands in the South China Sea. When China did that, uh, during his term, despite promises, explicit promises not to, uh, Obama did very little about it. So Donald Trump comes in and in his own unique way shakes up everything in, in both good and bad or constructive and unconstructive ways. Now Biden comes in and we're all wondering, okay, what, what will Biden be like? And yes, it is early days and it hasn't yet been any decisive action, but to give you a couple of examples of where I think Biden is very deliberately signaling where he stands, Say on the Uyghur issue, when in the last days of the Trump administration, Pompeo, uh, the former Secretary of State, declares that uh, genocide is occurring in Xinjiang. And all of, all of those who follow China realize that's a very uh, significant term. Now, Biden could have left that alone, but he actually reaffirmed it, or his Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, reaffirmed that. If you look at uh, the focus on progressing the Quad, you know, between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, that 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 was reinstituted uh, during the Trump years. Um, the Biden uh, people have gone out of their way to say that they want to move even faster and further with the Quad, and everyone knows the Quad really is about responding to China. Um, Taiwan, Biden um, um, sent. Uh, uh, missile destroyers through the Taiwan Straits when the Chinese were launching a series of actions. Once again, these sorts of actions do not yet carry any real cost for the Americans. But there are things that Biden didn't have to do, but the fact that he very deliberately and openly took those positions tell me that he's trying to signal that that resolve issue um, is not going to be in question uh, in the next four years ahead. I, I, I think there is a, a realization with the Biden people and some of them um, I've, I've dealt with quite personally actually on this issue. 
there's a genuine understanding that Chinese interference and in the, in the activities of the United Front is a serious problem in the United States and other democracies. So that's not in question. I think there's still that little question mark about the comfort with which some members of the administration have with dealing front on this issue. Because if you're dealing with Chinese interference in your domestic institutions, you're effectively calling out the Chinese Communist Party. And then you're also entering into a very thought world of race relations, uh, largely due to the fault of the Chinese Communist Party, which has weaponized race. But you're now starting having a conversation about race and impact of Chinese Americans in your society. That's a very awkward conversation at the best of times, but very awkward, particularly for a lot of the Obama people who just don't like talking about race uh, in this sort of context. A quick explanation, the United Front, uh, it's been around for quite a few decades in the Chinese Communist Party system, but to put it very simply, it's uh, a very well resourced, funded and manned program um, to work through Chinese diasporas in different countries, particularly Western democracies. And in the words of United Front uh, documents to activate Chinese diasporas to support policies of the motherland, that is People's Republic of China, uh, even if that is against the uh, policies or the values of the government of the day in the nation they have to reside in. So it's an inherently subversive uh, um, entity from, from that point of view. I think this is where um, you, you have a situation where a new administration has come in. They, as new administrations do, particularly one as uh, different to the previous Trump one, new administrations like to take a review of every executive order that the predecessor have taken, particularly moving from Trump to Biden. Uh, but it, but uh, more deeply than that, I think it's indication of what I just mentioned, that there is still um, a an inherent and long-standing discomfort with recognizing the extent to which Chinese Communist Party entities um, have actually infiltrated into American institutions. Now, I think that evidence is clear. It's not really speculation, it's, it's quite clear. Um, I, I do expect the Biden administration over time to move closer to Trump administration when it comes to these sorts of things. But as I mentioned, there's still a, a gut instinctive aversion to, to acknowledging the seriousness of these issues within one's uh, domestic borders.
Well, if, if, you, if you're looking at the intent of the Act, which is to um, counter or dismantle uh, relationships or agreements that uh, have been forged between Australian parties and international parties uh, that have ulti political ulterior motives, then I think you've got to say there's a very strong case for Confucius Institutes to be dismantled in the country. Now, whether that will happen or not, obviously it depends on an act of political will. Uh, my understanding is that the foreign minister ultimately has to, has to sign off on these things. Um, I guess the argument about why that need not be the case is that uh, because there's so much knowledge out there now about um, the Confucius Institutes and the background to them and the sorts of objectives that the CPP are trying to achieve through them, for that very reason, they've become less effective um, than they could be otherwise. But I would still say that under the terms of the Act, and in terms of uh, our, our preserving our long-term institutional integrity, I do think that those agreements should be revisited and ultimately uh, spent. That, that was written in context of um, comparing to the Obama administration, where I thought the Obama administration had quite good policies on paper. You had the pivot and um, you had you know, lots of policies beneath that on paper. But the pivot didn't work, in my view, uh, in the sense that it didn't reassure allies or unsettle rivals or competitors because no one actually thought the Obama administration or the president himself would actually make tough calls. And I think that that proved to be true. Now, moving to the Biden administration, that question of resolve, which is immeasurable, but it's, it's, it's clearly consequential. That question of resolve, I think Biden's made a good start on showing that he's different to Obama and he will make tough decisions that are disruptive and will displease Beijing. Uh, but the next step then is, you know, it's not just about showing resolve, it's about um, now coming up with the sorts of policies, particularly in the post-COVID world, that you need to um, um, protect your sovereignty, to secure, secure your supply chains, um, to compete effectively in a tech competition, a technological competition that's already occurring in China. You know, so there's now now it really gets into the wonkish policy work of um, changing your foreign investment laws or changing the way you do trade deals or, you know, the, the sorts of uh, civil military technology regulations that you have. Those sorts of very wonkish detailed stuff. That's what the Biden administration now needs to do because clearly resolve is not enough when you don't actually have a plan.
the easy answer is to say, yes, of course, marriage should be more vocal because these are things that the Americans themselves believe in and, and they, they need to demonstrate that. And look, to be fair to the Biden administration, their principles, Jake Sullivan, for example, national security advisor, he has weighed into the economic coercion argument. Uh, Tony Blinken has weighed into the human rights and applied argument. Um, quite, a, quite a few of the principles have done that. Even Joe Biden himself gave a speech uh, actually acknowledging that the United States was in a comprehensive rivalry with China, which is not something Democrat presidents traditionally have done. So I'm not actually too worried about the, the language or the diplomacy around this. I think what we need to see, though, are specific actions which uh, support those words. So, for example, you take the economic coercion argument. Jake Sullivan tweeted that what China was doing to Australia is unacceptable, yet American barley growers are filling the gaps uh, in the Chinese market um, that Australian barley growers used to do. So I, I suppose what I'm saying is that countries, sure, they would like America to speak up about it, but even more than that, they would like the United States to actually coordinate policies that make less effective these instances of coercion uh, that the Chinese are engaged in. I would say that Scott Morrison would rather have a public statement because if you think about what China is doing to Australia, it's, it's economic material coercion, but it's ultimately a psychological uh, play. It's ultimately to weaken the will of our politicians to make decisions and policies that are adverse interests of the CCP. And one way of achieving that is to convince Australia that you are on your own. Um, so anything that could signal that the harder the CPP pushes, the um, stronger the support from other countries, particularly United States, the better it is for us psychologically and the more disheartening, or perhaps that's a strong word, but the more problems that creates for uh, Beijing doing right. If you, if you speak to a diplomat, then I think you're correct. A diplomat would want lots of other countries to voice their support because it plays into what you mentioned, that um, accusation that we're the laptop of the Americans. But I think if you, if you speak to a politician or the people who actually think about 
the consequences. I'm not disparaging diplomats, but they're thinking more about relationships, reputation. But if you talk to the politicians, you know, the people who do the finance, uh, the defense people, the reason why America matters more than any other country is because it's because America has more capacity to make a difference or to change behavior of China more so than any other country. Um, and, and I would say, and I know you yourself are a student of, of, of China, I would say that the United States is the only country in the world that China respects and fears in any meaningful sense. Uh, so yes, the, the Chinese do try to bait us by saying we're lapdogs, they try to denigrate us using that, but ultimately it is our alliance with the United States and it's American action which the Chinese fear uh, most of all. The, the, the term America first in itself doesn't offend me. On the contrary, you know, America first, Australia first, Belgium first, you know, who, who would argue against that if you're leaders of those countries? I, I think the problem with the America first rhetoric, rhetoric coming out of President Trump was, was that it was signaling um, a, well, perhaps unfairly, but it was interpreted as America seeking to um, make hay for itself as opposed to other countries and or often at the expense of other countries when it came to trade relations. And also America having a view that um, self-sufficiency was what it was trying to achieve as opposed to the resilience of uh, friendly nations, you know, rule of law nations, democratic nations, those sorts of things. Now, I do... I do caveat that by saying that there is often a burden and expectation imposed on the United States that isn't imposed in any other, any other country to, to think of the welfare of other countries. But I would also say that the United States itself views itself that way. So it's not the America first firm per se. I think it was what, um, it, what other countries interpreted it as meaning when it came from the word, from the mouth of President Trump. Uh, I would I would put it this way um, that it is a in my mind it is about reimagining how globalization works. You know the old style of globalization only a few years ago was that it didn't matter what happened where or where supply chains came from um, because the world was engaged in the one economic system. You know, it 
just in time the cheapest uh, alternative was really all you had to think about. Uh, for me in our sovereign capabilities and national resilience, it's not about doing everything in Australia. It's growing reliant more so on supply chains based in friendly, trusted economies and growing less reliant on supply chains in unfriendly or on non-trusted economies. So to give you one example, um, or two examples, critical minerals. You know, we it's not about producing all of the critical minerals ourselves, but it's about ensuring that the critical mineral supply chain uh, is essentially, uh, um, it's, it, that the core of that is our, our countries such as the United States, Australia, Canada, uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries, countries that will not use coercive policies against us. The second example I'd give would be undersea cables where most of the data um, in the world um, use undersea cables. You know, we don't really want our undersea cables to run through China anymore because we don't trust China. We have no problem with our undersea cables running through Singapore and then to the United States or whatever the case may be, um, but not through China. So that's what I mean by saying that sovereign capability is not self-sufficiency. It's about deepening uh, networks with trusted, secure economies. Look, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think there's not much we can do about Hong Kong because Hong Kong is accepted ultimately as being part of the People's Republic of China, whereas Taiwan is a different situation. Oh, it was it was great to be here, and and thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.